You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, we would see Jesus tonight. Heavenly Father, we would hear Jesus tonight. Heavenly Father, we would be moved to love and serve Jesus tonight. Amen. Amen. I want to thank Gil for asking me to uh, speak on this topic. I have never been asked to do so. Really. And I uh, found it uh, a really helpful challenge how to build a presentation around that central idea. So I want to open up with the story of Hollis Minnell and Jim Blanchard. Hollis Minnell donated a book to a lending library in World War II. And Jim Blanchard, when he was in boot camp, he got a copy of this book and started to read it and soon found himself more captivated by the comments written in the margin in a lovely feminine handwriting than in the actual text itself. And he opened the file leaf and noticed that uh, the address of the donor was in the book so he wrote her, and they began a pen pal relationship, which sustained him through his darkest moments uh, during World War II. He, uh, the, his tour of duty in Europe was over, and they agreed to meet in Grand Central Station. Now. Miss Minel never would send a picture of herself. So he was supposed to carry in his hand the book that was the bridge between their two hearts, and she was to wear a hat with a big bright red rose in it. So they are to meet at Grand Central Station by the clock. He waits. He does not see anyone with the red rose. But, well, he describes her as Miss Springtime Come Alive, the most gorgeous young woman in a green pantsuit, walks right by him. And as soon as he, she walks past him, he sees a woman with a red rose in her hair, her rather well-kent gray hair tucked up underneath that matched her thick ankles and sensible shoes and rather fulsome, plump appearance. And Jim Blanchard said he was torn in two. Everything inside him wanting to follow Miss Springtime Come Alive. Oh, I'm sorry, I forgot a little detail. When Miss Springtime Come Alive walked by him, she turned to him smiling and said, Going my way, Sailor? <laughs> Everything in him wanted to do that. 
But then he remembered that through the darkest moments of his life, she had accompanied him, companioned him, and he decided that it might not be love, but it might be something more special. So he squared his shoulders, walked up to her, presented the book, and said, you must be Miss Hollis Minail. I'm a Lieutenant Jim Blanchard. And the woman with the quizzical look on her face and a slight smile said, young man, I don't have the foggiest idea what this is all about. But a woman in a green pantsuit said, if you should come up and introduce yourself to me, she's waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. <laughs> Hollis Meinel was a wise woman, wasn't she? She knew she could be loved for the wrong reason. The harsh reality of life is so can God. We can love God because we think if he likes us that we are better than other people. That if we're like God, we're better than other people. And we can have a quiet smugness. Have you ever seen uh, a preacher that gives the impression, I've chosen Jesus because I'm smart. You haven't and you're just an idiot. You know, there's only one thing worse than that kind of Christianity of loving God for the wrong reason. It means you think God loves us for the wrong reason. That you think God loves those who are worthy those who are beautiful, those who are acceptable, those who are successful, that God is running a fraternity or sorority, and only people who he thinks would make him look good would he want to be associated with. Because that's what we're thinking when we think our religion is a way to prove to ourselves and others that we're better than other people. Why do we do that? Because we know deep down we need something outside us to give us worth and value. Whether it's money or social position or looks or athletic success or being the one the angry person who rejects all that and therefore is morally superior to those who have all that because they reject all that. Whatever it is that you think you need to convince yourself that in comparison to other people, you're just not so bad. If that's how you look at God, sadly... That's how you're going to think God looks at us. You may know I do a lot of work with elite athletes, and I'm not criticizing Olympic gold medalists who get up and talk about what a difference Jesus makes for them. But let's be honest. 
That's not hard, is it? <laughs> if you have the Olympic gold medal around your neck to give God thanks, I am so respectful and in awe of Paralympic champions because their gold medal doesn't make them well-bodied. And when they are grateful and full of joy in life despite all of their sufferings, because they know God loves them, not because they're the perfect example of human success, that has an authenticity and a power that we all can relate to. One of my, uh, we had a, a retreat recently for um, uh, Christian Olympians, and they were all highly successful uh, world record holders or Olympic gold medalists or national champions. But each one of them have discovered the truth of the Christian life, which is God has made the way of the cross the way of life. Not one of them got a pass on deep, deep hurt, pain, and disappointment. And they were such powerful ministers to each other because they could both witness to the brokenness of life and the goodness of God, the sufficiency of God, the power of God to bring meaning and purpose out of suffering and sorrow. The glory of God is not to look and reward the successful, but to tend the brokenhearted, to renew the hope of the struggling, to promise that the darkness will not go on forever, that the struggles that we encounter will be the bridge to a bigger, better, brighter future. I know most people have favorite Bible verses. I have least favorite Bible verses. Does anybody have a Bible? Could you read my least favorite Bible verse? John 15, 2. I think the lady behind you is is really on the ball. I was raised that because I can find this verse. John, John Gospel of John fifteen, verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. I just think that's so unfair. <laughs> if I had been obedient, faithful, worked hard. Shouldn't I get some, a glass of whiskey and a cigar and put my feet up? But what's it say? I am promised 
difficulties and struggles. Not because I've been unfaithful, but because I have. You know that when a caterpillar is transforming into a butterfly, they have to struggle to break out of the cocoon with their wings. And if you, as I would have been a tender-hearted boy, see the struggle and try to cut it open so that they can get out quicker, you just condemn them to death because it's the struggle with their wings to break open the cocoon that makes the wings strong enough so they can fly. I always tell athletes the day before their competition, I can't tell you whether tomorrow's going to be Good Friday or Easter Sunday. And if it's Good Friday, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean the nails won't hurt. But if it is Good Friday, I can promise you it won't be the last word. God's love and not loss. That's what gets the last word. Easter will come. You may have heard me say that I actually hate being in the Olympic Village. Can you imagine why I would hate to be in the Olympic Village? 99% There is so much pain. And pain in front of a billion people. Not really able to hide from it, can you? But I go back because I have never seen God not be faithful, not take that pain and disappointment and make it a bridge to something stronger and better. God doesn't look for the successful he looks for those who recognize that they're in need. He doesn't ask us to present our virtues. He asks us to help us with our vices. And that's at the heart um, of the gospel. Could someone read Romans Chapter 4, verse 5. And do the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Well, the second half we'll talk about a bit later in terms of Martin Luther, but it's the first half of that phrase that is so scandalous that we miss it. Justifies means count as not guilty. God counts as not guilty the guilty. Isn't that what that verse says? Yeah. Now, if your children asked you to not count them guilty when they're guilty, would you be accommodating? But that's what God does. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. 
to another faith by the same spirit, to another gifts of healing oh, by the one spirit. I'm sorry. Second Corinthians chapter twelve. Chapter 12, verse 9. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, yeah, okay. for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. We don't want to think that God loves us for the wrong reason. He loves us because he knows we need him. The medieval church got it all mixed up. They said that original sin has two consequences. Everything in medieval theology seems to always have two results. And what is result number one of original sin? That you are born guilty of what Adam did and therefore, if you die without being baptized, you uh, don't get to go to heaven. And the second thing is that you're born miswired. You love the right things, but out of order. Instead of loving God first, your neighbor, and then yourself, you love yourself first, maybe your neighbor, and maybe God. And this miswiring is what we use that wonderful technical theological term, concupiscence. Anyone ever heard of concupiscence? It's often called by Cranmer the lust of the flesh. What that just means is that we're self-centered. And that's the product that we come into the world with. And therefore, medieval theology taught that in baptism, God responds to the consequences of original sin. So if we're born guilty of Adam's transgression, baptism takes it away. But baptism doesn't change the fact that we're miswired, that we have concupiscence in us whispering in our ear, suggesting that we should rebel against God. So God puts in us his presence, his power. Uh, the technical medieval term for that is sanctifying grace. Um, and this inherent righteousness is a power pack to help you be different. Now, have you ever noticed something weird about Cramner's colics when it talks about grace? He can refer to grace both in a Protestant fashion and in a Catholic fashion. For Protestants, grace is an attribute of God. God is gracious. He forgives you, though you don't deserve it. But in medieval times, grace was what we would now call the Holy Spirit working in you. And therefore, baptism puts the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in you. And therefore, you have Porky Pig, good angel, encouraging you and empowering you to make a good choice. And you have concupiscence, 
Porky Pig Bad Angel whispering in your ear? And what is going to decide your eternal fate? What you choose. Do you choose to listen to the Porky Pig Good Angel? To the power of God? The sanctifying grace in you that's urging you to do well? Or are you going to listen to Porky Pig Bad Angel to concupiscence, the lust of the flesh, and decide to rebel against God? And what happens if you consent to Porky Pig Good Angel? You get more good proudy points, which increase how much power of good you have working in you. And what happens if you listen to Porky Pig Bad Angel? You commit a mortal sin, which means that you, your soul dies. You lose sanctifying grace. You lose the Holy Spirit in you. And you'll go to hell if you die at that moment until the priest comes and gives it back to you through the sacrament of penance. And therefore, salvation depends on your choices and you never know whether you will die when you still have made good choices. In fact, you have to be afraid of not making it to heaven because that will help motivate you to keep trying harder. Do you think fear is a really good way to motivate people to do good? Nope. How about shame? No. Duty? All of those are what the medieval church tried to use to motivate people to do good. Stephen Gardner, who was the Bishop of Winchester, one of Cranmer's biggest opponents, said, What's wrong with this system? You get what you earn. What's wrong with saying people have to earn enough brownie points with God's help to be able to be worthy of going to heaven? God only loves the worthy. Martin Luther was struggled with that concept because he realized an important uh, aspect of human nature. Remember, according to medieval teaching, it's your choice that determines what happens to you. But have you ever noticed that when you're in the moment, you can think you're doing something for a really good reason, and then years later realize that there was other things going on in your subconscious that you were not aware of that was shaping and changing you? Say, for example, you decide to take a stand for God and people give you a really hard time. And you fight for God and you defend that position. And then about 10 years later, the Holy Spirit whispers in your ear and says, Remember when you took that stand for me? 
and your chest kind of fills out and your shoulders go back and you say, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, you know, you were fighting for the right thing, right? Yeah. But you realize it had nothing to do with me. You felt rejected by those folks because they didn't agree with you. And you fought, not for my honor, but for yours. Has that ever happened to people in Alabama, only kids from Kansas? See, we can be shaped by things when we grow up and learn ways to cope with the pain and not even remember anymore what the, what the issue was. And it can really affect how we see things and the choices we make. And they're not always good. And Martin Luther realized because of that, because we can be shaped and make choices and be self-centered in ways that we're completely unaware of, who can say that they don't have any sin unless they consciously choose it? Sometimes we sin and just aren't aware of it. Isn't that why God created marriage? So that you can help your spouse understand their selfishness that your spouse can't see on their own? It's funny because it's true, isn't it? This is a true story. I only know because the minister told it in a group in person. It has now become legendary because it is such a great story. You have to understand, though, that in England, your rear end is referred to as a bum. So he's preaching on um, the sin of Gehazi. This is a story where Elisha refuses to accept a gift for helping Nahum uh, uh, get rid of his leprosy. Um, and then the servant goes ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, Nahum is hesitant. Uh, Elijah basically says, just dip in the water seven times in this river and you'll be healed. And Nahum's like, if, were there no rivers in Syria that you make me come all this way just to do something like that? And his servant says, don't be an idiot. You've come that long. Just do it and see what happens. So the sermon was on, but Nahum. And of course, in Scotland, uh, where the minister had come from and had just come to Buckhead in Atlanta, um, he was going to preach on the grammatical text. And he took as his point, but. First point, everybody has a but. Second in their lives, you know, where God says something and we're hesitant to respond. Some buts are bigger than others. That you can wrestle and not be more hesitant. At a, and the people are beginning to... His third point... It is always easier to see someone else's butt than to see your own. 
at which the whole point everybody bursts out laughing and he is clueless he has no idea why they're laughing at him <laughs> when you realize that despite our best efforts that we all have things in our lives that do not line up with God whether we are aware of them or not how can anyone have any hope that they are worthy before God. And that's why Luther goes back and looks again in Scripture and then reads Romans 4, 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That God doesn't look to us to prove that we're worthy of salvation, but simply to receive that God sees us as Christ and we are credited. Luther's great phrase is the glorious exchange. He takes our sins and gives us his relationship with God. Now, because the whole medieval culture constantly emphasized that you had to be worthy, be good enough for God to love you, Cramner wants us to realize that that's our mistake, that God doesn't look for the worthy, he looks for the unworthy. And so he's constantly putting on our lips in his liturgy a confession that we are unworthy. Now, for many people, that's a downer. That's insulting. That's shaming us. Well, it's only shaming us if we don't believe it or if we are running to hide from it. Why do we have New Year's resolutions? Because we're fundamentally ill at ease with parts of ourselves. And the fact that we say those parts, those same resolutions year after year just remind us how difficult it is for us to change the things that we don't like about ourselves. And so much of our time is spent running from that. I learned a long time ago working with elite athletes, if someone has gone very far, very fast, guess what the number one pastoral question to ask is? What are they running from? And Cramner wants us to acknowledge our unworthiness, not to shame us, to humiliate us, to denigrate us, as people often say, but to liberate us, to free us, to give us peace that we can be naked at least before God because after all it's no surprise to him 
And in that nakedness, in that vulnerability, where we acknowledge our unworthiness and hear his ongoing words of love, acceptance, and purpose, we get a sense of worth and value that doesn't go away. I love to say that marriage is God's sandpaper to rub off your selfishness. But it is also God's buffing cloth to bring out your finest grain. Because when you know that someone is willing to continue to be vulnerable with you, and they know that you're going that you have hurt them and that you are going to hurt them either out of tiredness or ignorance or old-fashioned orneriness and they still love you they still stay with you what greater way can someone experience a sense of worth and value beyond their weaknesses? You know, I don't know what um, uh, the Advent teaches, but I always tell young seminarians, if your congregation gives you their all, it's a package deal. They give you their good and their bad. They're good and they're bad. They're gonna, you're going to have to learn to overlook their shortcomings in love. Oh, by the way, if you give your all to the congregation, you're going to give your good and your bad. It's a package deal. They're going to have to learn to overlook your shortcomings in love. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> oh, by the way, if you don't model how to look, overlook their shortcomings, they may not know how to overlook yours. <laughs> and marriages, when they work, they work because people are able to learn to love beyond the shortcomings of their spouse. As the local Jewish mother in my hometown used to always say, you don't get married because you're in love with their virtues. You get married because you can live with their vices. And the heart of the Reformation insight is that God loves us as we are because we are both at the same time sinners because of our struggles, but because of Christ's righteousness, we're saints. How do you make homemade ice cream? Sorry? And she still loves you? You need milk, sugar, Eggs, maybe, and some fruit? Does it look appetizing when you try to put them together? Does it bother you? Why not? Come on in. You know what it's going to turn out to be, right? 
the heart of the Reformation is God loves us as we are warts and all because he knows what his love is going to do, how we're going to end up, that Jesus is going to present us spot and blameless before the throne because that's his power, his promise, his purpose for us. So when Cranmer talks about our unworthiness, it's not an insult to us. It's a praise to God. We experience both liberation because we don't have to hide, but we also have hope that we're not going to stay this way, that this isn't all there is. And that God loves us and is at work in us? How unlike us he must be. The glory of God, the reason why we praise him, the reason why we serve him, is because he loves the unworthy. Now, this is where we get to do our liturgy test. How much do you remember without having the prayer book in front of you? But this theme of unworthiness runs throughout the prayer book. We have left undone those things we ought to have done. And we have done those things we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. What that means is not there's no good points in us. But because we are a mixed bag, there is no merit in us. And apart from God being at work, we have no hope to be healthy. We're just confessing and releasing ourselves to the truth that we need God to be active in us. Did you notice what the absolution that follows that prayer is? that God may grant us true repentance and his Holy Spirit. Does that seem odd to anyone? I mean, wait a minute, shouldn't we repent before the, before the, the pronouncement of forgiveness? For Cramner, grace, i.e. forgiveness, produces gratitude. Gratitude produces love. Love produces repentance. You guys want to know the secret of stop sinning? How much you want to pay me for? It's very simple. Love God more than sin, right? And fear, shame, guilt, and duty don't produce love. What produces love? We love him because he first loved us. Do you know that there's something called attachment disorder in children? 
Human beings do not have the capacity in and of themselves to love. If they have not been loved by a human being, they don't have the power to love someone else and attach themselves in a relationship. Collective purity. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hid, total vulnerability before God. Cleanse the hearts, sorry, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts. Ever notice that weird phrase, the thoughts of our hearts? Because in the Reformation, head and heart are kept together. Thoughts and emotions both need to be touched by God. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of thy Holy Spirit, which for Cranmer, the Holy Spirit comes through the Word. And as God promises forgiveness and cleanses the thoughts of our hearts, gives us peace of mind that we know we have been reconciled to God. We don't have to prove to Him we are good enough. He has made us His own forever. What follows from that? What comes next? We may perfectly love. Love for Him comes from Him loving us enough to forgive us and empower us. And from love what comes? Good works. And good works produces a better society, even as we wait for the age to come. Grace, gratitude, love, repentance, good works, better society. And Cramner has, give us true repentance after our confession, because only when we have been assured of forgiveness will the love come that enables us to change. Anyone ever had teenage boys? Have, did you wait for the magic moment when all of a sudden you didn't have to tell them anymore about the importance of showering? And you didn't have to tell them the importance of clean and freshly pressed clothes? All of a sudden, it's all of a sudden it happened by itself, right? It's amazing what will happen when you're motivated by love. And that's what Cramner wants us motivated by. And therefore, whenever he talks about our unworthiness, it's not to denigrate us, but to show how great God's love is for us as we are. And that that will then inspire us to love him and to grow more like him. We can talk about the prayer of humble access, not trusting in our own righteousness. We're not so much, we're not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs. Just being free and broken. But it's your property always to have mercy. Not weighing our merits, not trying to prove we're worthy, but pardoning our offenses. How about y'all? 
How about us? Do we take on board Cramner's notion that it's the glory of God to love us, broken, struggling human beings as we are? Or do we fall into the trap of trying to put up a false persona to God, a false persona to others, a false persona to ourselves? Of course, we all fall into that, but isn't that exhausting? And it's fundamentally a misunderstanding of God. How does Cramner end his communion service with the Gloria? And three times in the Gloria, you say, um, he who taketh away the sins of the world. He who taketh away the sins of the world. He who taketh away the sins of the world. A lot of folks think that that suggests that once again, that it's a downer. How can you be glorifying God if you're wallowing in penitential nonsense? But if you understand that acknowledging and finding a remedy for our unworthiness is the greatest gift God gives us? What better way of giving him glory than acknowledging that he takes away our sins? And what's that last phrase? Thou alone art holy. And yet he associates with us and does not let us go, and promises that we will be like him when he is done with us. Can we take that on board? Let me close by a story, a true story from the Rio Olympics. There was a, a young Mexican diver who got a silver medal in uh, London in synchronized diving. Now, in America, a silver medal is the first loser and is not really nothing to talk about. But everywhere else in the world, it's a pretty big deal. And especially in Mexico, because they only got four medals for the entire Mexican Olympic team in London. So he's a big deal. He gets his Nike contract. He gets to meet the president of Mexico. He gets to be an A-list celebrity. But how long does that last? That's right, until the next Olympics. Because it doesn't matter what you did the last one. And now he wants to get married. And what do you think he needs to get married? Another medal. <laughs> he needs a job, right? And to get a job, to get a Nike contract, he needs another medal. So we're talking really practical stuff here. And he's a He's a fine young man. And uh, his prayer life has been concentrated, shall we say. And he is earnest about all of this. But he's had a shoulder injury. And he's tried to come back. And he, got, he qualified for in Mexico. And so he goes. And he's praying. He's not hearing anything ever been like that? That you're in a difficult situation 
the fear is palpable and you pray God doesn't say anything that you can pick up he and his partner compete they come in fifth now fifth in the world ain't bad is it but it's no metal that's not good for Nike but worse it's not good for Mexico because this was one of their premier events and overnight he goes from being a hero to a zero people say how selfish of her man he should have backed away let our other guy get a new partner then we would have won a medal it's his fault that Mexico did not win in this event one of their best events and it is a tidal wave of really ugly comments because you know you can say anything you want on the internet right Those are some of the painful things of watching a, a kid cope with that. But to make it worse, he's not done. He has to compete in the individual round. Now, he was 13th in London, so the individual is not anything special. But, and right now, he's not in the best frame of mind. But you got to go through, right? You got to show up and do what you're there for. So, what do you say to him? You say, God is not cruel. He has brought you to Rio for good things. It may not be the good things you were hoping for. But be faith. Trust his faithfulness. Do you believe? God has brought you here for good things. What can, what can you say? So with tears in his eyes, he says, yes. I believe God has brought me here for good things. My guess is that was more aspirational than uh, authentic, but that's all you can do. Okay. So, individual round. First round. There's three rounds. First round, he's 13th. Nothing to write home about. Nothing unexpected about what he did to London. But they take the top 18 into the second round. So in the second round, he gets ninth. Nothing to write home about, no medals, no contract. But it does take him into the final. He's in the final. First round, he hits his shoulder. It hurts really, really bad. It hurts so bad he comes up out of the water cursing a blue streak. Now he's the poster boy Christian athlete from Mexico and he's cursing a blue streak. And then he looks up 
and he sees it's all been caught on camera. He has literally been stripped of everything now. His athletic achievement, his Christian witness, he's, in the eyes of people, a multiple failure. You might say that he had proved his unworthiness to be a representative of Christ in the Olympics. It's at that moment God decides to speak. What do you think he says to Herman? Do you think he shames him? If you didn't do stupid stuff like this, that's why you're in this mess, right? What's the number one question I'm asked by Christian athletes that don't reach their goals? What did I do wrong? Because clearly I'm being punished. No. God simply says to Herman, how many of your teammates would give anything to be in an Olympic final? How many divers around the world would give anything to be in an Olympic final? Why don't you just enjoy the gift I've given you? Earlier that week, his father had said, Son, let me tell you a story about a little boy who just loved to fly in the air, get on the trampoline, and would spend hours flying and twisting and turning, and then discovered that he could do that from a 10-meter board. He could fly higher and twist and turn. And he loved it so much that he just started going all over the country to competitions where he could get to fly through the air. And then he discovered he was really good, so they invited him to do more competitions and more competitions. And one day he's in the Olympics. Son, just... Remember, I don't care what the result is, just enjoy. God witnesses that, and his darkest moment that God has given him diving as a source of joy. And by the end of that round, Herman came home with the individual silver medal in Olympic diving. Now, I can tell you a whole lot more stories where it don't end like that. But the point is, what I love about this story is when he was clearly unworthy. When he had clearly screwed up and embarrassed God. God did not shame him but made clear it is my glory 
to love you no matter what. And my love will bring out the best in you. You know, it's only when we're freed up from trying to prove that we're worthy that we can focus on trying to love and serve other people. I was just talking to a college pastor today who was saying that young people today are so confused about who they are that they have no empathy for anybody else because all of their psychic energy is trying to figure it out. God wants to give us peace to glorify himself that he knows we're a package deal and he's going to make something beautiful out of us and to give us that peace of mind so that in the midst of our strengths and weaknesses not only do we get more whole but we can be used by him to touch other folks and so my prayer is that when you hear Cramner's liturgy you hear liberation and release into serving God, that his glory is to make something beautiful out of us despite all of our shortcomings, that his love is the bluffing cloth that brings out our finest grain. Thank you. I'm sorry, Gil, it wasn't three hours, but I tried. <laughs> this is intermission, right? Did <laughs> <laughs> you take a question or two? Sure, sure. Did he ever get married? The diving, did he ever get married? Did she love him despite his, his faults? Sorry? Did she love him despite his faults and show the love of Christ and... Well, he can't, well, because he got the silver medal, he got a big Nike contract. <laughs> and they now have a, a one-year-old son. But, it got, but just remember, though, the way of the cross is the way of life. That was a very special moment. For Tokyo, a year ago, a year ago, he got injured, his Achilles tendon. This is not good for a diver, because you have to, you know, on your toes. And he fought, and he fought, and he rehabbed, and he was almost back to his best form. It's Olympic trials in Mexico in May. He rips it again. His career is probably over. And you remember that with the good comes the other, and God will work that to good. But just because God brilliantly does something today doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. But you know, just like the loss of the synchronized wasn't the last word, this injury will not be the last word either. Like all of us, God gives us plenty of practice of learning to grow and trust Him 
through difficulties. But they have a, a wonderful uh, one-year-old son, um, which I'm looking forward to seeing shortly. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, you talked a little bit about the misconception with the use of the liturgy and the disintegration, that that's often misunderstood by, by outsiders or by others. Uh, what's, what guidance do you have for helping um, overcome that in the regular use of the, the liturgy? So people are going to continue to use the liturgy, even though there's misconceptions about it. How do we overcome that misunderstanding in the regular use of it besides every time clarifying? I'm going to say something that's going to sound like it has nothing to do with, with your question, but I'll hopefully I'll, I'll circle back and link. So I, I will do my best to land the plane. Um, oh gosh, it is terrible getting older. I used to be able to have three thoughts in my mind at once, and now they collide and the screen goes blank, and I just forgot what I was going to say. Oh. And I'm not that old. And, uh, I'm just getting, I'm getting nervous of what's coming. <laughs> um, please repeat your question. So there are outsiders may regularly. Oh, thank you. Sir. Oh, please, uh, it's there. We better go for it while it's still there. <laughs> um, Christian, uh, everything in an athlete's life, especially American athlete, you have to earn. So if you preach the gospel to an athlete and do not preach against performance-based identity, they're just going to hear the gospel as another way to earn favor, And but they're going to be thinking, i got a super-duper coach who's more powerful than my coach, and if I please him, then I'm going to get brownie points and I'm going to win. And if I don't win, my first question is going to be, what did I do wrong? Therefore, the best way uh, to talk about the gospel in those cultures is to recognize the, how people are hear it and preach against it. So what do you do since, since we are so afraid of our, our weaknesses that we, we... Point two. I have learned that it's a very difficult thing to talk to ministers about performance-based identity and how we shouldn't be shaming our congregations. Bishop Fitz Simmons, Allison, anybody here heard of Bishop Fitz? He tells the wonderful story, if you've heard it before, I do apologize, about this older woman, pillar of the church. He comes on the bishop's visitation, and she says, Bishop, we just love our young new rector. He plays well with the little children, and us older ladies, he's so attentive at tea, and he can handle the finances. Our husbands are happy with him, that he's a good administrator. He's just wonderful. Except when he gets in the pulpit, he just fusses at us. About 90% of pulpits in America... People get fussed at on Sunday. 
Now, liberals and conservatives fuss about different things, but the implicit is you just got to try harder to be better. And that's what Christianity is about, trying harder to be better. And because that is our culture, we've got to fight against that and say, no, Christianity isn't based on what we do for God, but what God does for us. And therefore, why do people object to admitting that we're unworthy? Because they, because they think we've got to earn it. That's telling us how far away we are from earning it. And therefore, we need to create a context where people realize that honesty and authenticity isn't denigrating, but liberating, because our weaknesses don't threaten either God's love for us or His purpose in our lives. Can any... Now, if I've done this with you, I can't... Does anyone... Can someone read Philippians 1.6? Oh, actually, let's... You have a Bible. Could you read another Bible? Philippians 1.6? Well, there's a point to it, David. I, I, I don't think that the, 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 the apps have footnotes on the Bible passages. Philippians 1 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I am sure of this. I am certain that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Who's doing the action? God. Who's he doing the action on? Us. Now, isn't there a footnote in there that says. In some ancient manuscripts, it adds, if you try hard enough. <laughs> no, it's not there. Maybe, if you're good enough. Is that in there? If you're pure enough? There's, there's, there's no condition attached to that promise? Are you sure God can be so radical as to say something like that? That's what we instantly add even though it's not in the text. And so we have to preach the gospel. Now, by the way, God can make that unconditional promise because we have Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound like sweat equity? Our choices matter. There is no spiritual progress in life without good choices. And some choices are harder than others. And some have to be repeated several times a day for days on end. To pretend that choices do not matter is neither realistic nor biblical. But how can God make the unconditional promise in Philippians 1.6 when we also know our choices matter? Uh, could you read Philippians 2.13? The very next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Yes, our choices matter. But who shapes our choices? 
Who is at work to draw out of us good choices? Who uses our good and bad circumstances to help us make good choices? Him. It's not. I used to think that I needed to use my willpower to make good choices and then God rewarded me based on how I used my willpower. That's the medieval system that I was talking about. And that's America, right? But that's not what Paul says. He says, my willpower by which I make my choices is God's work in me. That's my hope if I'm struggling with choices is to remind him that he's promised to enable me to make good choices. And in my brokenness and dependence on his promises to watch him do in me what I cannot do so that I do make those good choices that will determine whether or not I make progress in the Christian life. Therefore, he can make the unconditional promise in Philippians 1 because he's the one who ensures we make good choices in Philippians 2. And that's the basis of Anglican Reformation theology, pure and simple. What I don't understand why God's love doesn't shape everyone's heart to make the choices to draw close to him and to others in his service. That's above my pay grade. But scripture makes clear that not everyone will do that. But I do know in my case, it's not because I'm better than other people because I have made wife choices and they're idiots. It's because his love has sought me out and allured me to him it will not let me go until he fashions my heart and my actions more like him. And therefore, I can only be more grateful rather than, well, rather than rejoice in arrogance. I won't say I don't have any because that's not realistic. But the point is our hope, my hope is in what he's doing in, in me. And when people accuse us of being moralistic and judgmental, I will share one thing and then I'll stop. Um, I was at a really she-she artist colony retreat that I and a colleague had got had won a, a fellowship to. Um, and it was a, a high-end... I mean, these were very talented artists and I was... We were working on a horse whispering book. He was doing the paintings and I was doing the text. And I forget, I think it's not an exaggeration. There were uh, seven of us and we went through four bottles of wine. And for those of you, I don't drink, I'm allergic to alcohol. So that's four bottles of wine between six people. Then we started on the double scotches afterwards. It was a true artist colony. And it came up that although I never said anything, because I'm evangelical, they just knew I was being judgmental of them. And I said, oh gosh, can we cut this part out of the 
recording. Um, I said, you're artists. You compare yourselves to others for your sense of worth and value of your art and your person. And you always know that you feel that you're a good artist because you're better than all these other lousy artists. And because that's how you see the world, you assume that's how I think. And because my thing is not art but religion, you assume that I think I'm better than you because I have better better religion than you. But you see, I'm taught that I'm in need of grace. That I am not worthy in my own strength. That in me there is no health. And I'm taught that because I need grace, I need to extend that to other people and that I can't think of myself as better than you because then I have no way to stand before God myself. So um, if anyone is looking down on anybody, it's not me. (laughs) And you could have heard a pin drop (laughs) because it was there. The point is, If you have people that are accusing you of being judgmental because you hold to the Bible, don't fight them. Just be humble. And if that doesn't surprise them, I don't know what will. (laughs) Should we stop? Sure. Lord Jesus, there is so much hurt and pain and confusion and uncertainty and anxiety in in our church, in our society, in our country, in our world. Thank you that you specialize in the rescue business. Thank you that you shine brightest when it's dark. Thank you that you work not some, but all things together for good. We pray that your love would not be too little, nor your arm too short, to use all of us present in this room and all those through whom we are connected to both understand your glory to love us to associate with us and to use us and give us the blessing to see in the land of the living the difference you have made and are making in others because you work through us We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.